0: This episode contains discussions on topics like grief, death, and cancer. Please be safe when you listen.
1: Welcome to write or Die Ghost-tober, where we talk to authors who write spooky, scary, or disturbing books and find out all about their writing process and how they keep readers hiding under the covers. so weird. Hold on one second. Uh, Say something. Hello. It's just not going to be fixed. It's fine. Whatever.
0: What's wrong with
1: them? I don't know if it's my speaker. It might be my headphones, but like the left side is like has static in it. So it's just like you sound like a bumblebee. (laughs) (laughs) Like an adorable. Like an adorable bumblebee. Well, I have a confession to make. <gasps>
0: I'm an adorable bumblebee.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I suspected for so long. Finally. <laughs> Confirmed. Um, oh, it's really funny. I was, uh, I did, not funny. It's really cool. I did a panel this week. You know that, um, uh, Romance Writers of America, a day of YA. Yeah. And there was, like, one point where we were talking about sub. Like, one of the questions was legitimately, like, how was your submission experience? And, like, how long were you on sub? And we were all like, oh, I guess we can tell people because our books are out mm-hmm. and, <laughs> you know, transparency and whatever. But, like, it it's the first time I've ever seen this asked at a conference on a panel. Um, but... One person like on the panel was like, Oh, I was actually on sub for like three months, and she was like, That's really short, just so everyone knows, because you know, it was a writing conference, not a yeah. fan conference. Yeah. And so then I was like, Yeah, I was on sub for like six months, and she was like, That's short too. And I was like, Yeah, now I know that. Mm-hmm. And then I was explaining how you create a write or die after we had that conversation mm-hmm. when I was like complaining when I was only on sub for like eight weeks. <laughs> Um and people were like we're like, Oh my god, we love Ride or Die And I was like, Oh, okay. Famous. Really? <laughs> yeah, like people knew the podcast already. So it was oh, really cute. I love
0: that. That's so cool. Yeah. yeah. I mean it's it really does like the origin story of Ride or Die really does um lend itself to those kinds of stories because first of all, it's hilarious <laughs> that yeah. um that I started an entire podcast to I always say to prove you wrong, but really, it was to comfort you.
1: <laughs> no, yeah. No, you it know? wasn't. I mean, it was to prove me wrong, but in a way, like, where, like, in, like, a way where, like, you know that I spiral. So you're, like, right. I need to snap her out of it. Right, And right. I can do it by presenting her with, like, reality.
0: Right. Yeah. And yeah. it's just funny how it comes up, like, so often um, now with, with people talking about being on sub and how there's, like, so little information about it out there because everybody's just sort of like, I don't know what I'm allowed to say. People are really
1: afraid to talk about it. But the thing about sub too, like I'm only speaking from like my own experience having like gone on sub, gone through sub, had a successful submission process and like had a book come out. I will say that like the reason why I really didn't want to talk about how long I was on submission was twofold. One was like, I felt that people being really excited about this is this is um, I realize now like a silly superstition, but I felt like if people knew how long it took my book to sell, they would be less excited about it, and like all the pre publication buzz would like die down if people were like, "Oh wait, it took that long for like a publisher to like her book. Maybe it's not that good." And so I didn't want people to know how long it took, even though, like I said on this panel, we were talking about it. And six months actually is fairly short in the grand scheme of things, like when you're looking at averages. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then on the other side, I do I did also think like if it if um if it is short, then I don't want to seem like I'm bragging. Right. So it was really weird because everyone, like, half the time I would be like, oh, my God, people are going to think it took me too long. And the other half the time I was like, oh, my God, people are going to think I'm bragging that it didn't take me too long. That comes from the fact that there's so little information about it because mm-hmm. no one will talk about it. And yeah. then our insecurities take over.
0: So it sucks. I think that the that readers will not know what sub even is for the most part. So I, th- I think that they really don't care. And... You could see it one of two ways, in my opinion. You could see it as for the people who do sort of get what it is and are not like authors in the industry who are, to be quite honest, just being jerks about it. Because people who think that a a book has less value because it didn't, you know, sell immediately or go to auction, those are snobs. There's no other word for it. They're assholes. I'm sorry. If that's you, like, talk to Jesus or your God (laughs) or your mom or someone. But that is not a really nice way to, to look at things and if that's your opinion fine but you're wrong and ugly that's that's number one <laughs> that's jot that jot that down everyone that's the first thing you yeah. need to write down second rule of all, one
1: of being a good person right or a nice person
0: right second for readers the way that they're gonna look at it is if it sold quickly in their eyes they'll be like wow that's so exciting if it didn't sell right away they will be like wow that's so inspiring Because look at how readers look at J.K. Rowling. Like, oh, she Mm -hmm. got 12 rejections. She was on sub for about a year. Like, 12 rejections now, we know, is nothing. But being on sub for an entire year for Harry Potter is a big deal. Because you would think it would sell right away. And it wasn't snapped up right away. But it's also, like, pretty average, right? Especially back then. Children's books, she set the standard for children's books selling the way that they do now, you know? Yeah. Um. So the average reader, the average person who's not in publishing, is if they do think it's a long time, they're not going to be like, ew, it must be bad. They're going to be like, wow, she didn't give up, even though it was a long time. That's how the general public sees things. It's either a Cinderella story, like no matter what you the way you look at it. Look at people like, I mean, I mean, this book is like super problematic, and she's probably not the best example of this, but off the top of my head, the woman who wrote The Help went through all of these, versions of the book and was, like, writing it, like, in the hospital and all this stuff. They make mm-hmm. entire articles and, like, a huge big deal about that. You know, nobody's saying, like, oh, man, she got rejected so many times. Because at the end of the day, the book came out.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that totally makes sense. I mean, honestly, it is. I think the problem um, often uh, with, especially debut authors and um, people being, pu- like, early in their publishing career is that we do exist in a bubble, especially with, like, how social media is now. And we see a very small microcosm of, like, the greater reader, writing, publishing community. And so all of the things that those people are talking about and obsessed about, and oftentimes writers are following and friends with other writers, right? So mm-hmm. the things that we're obsessing about is is legitimately how long were you on sub, how many, like, did you go to auction, how big was your deal, how big is your marketing push, all of those, like, business details And yeah, it's great that we have a community that is, cares about that enough to talk about it because then it's like a community we can discuss these issues with, which like that involves our career. But then I do think like sometimes our minds get skewed in the sense of like, we're like, this is all anyone in publishing or in the reading community cares about is like how many publishers Like offered on my book and how like big my deal was and like how much like how big my marketing plan is you know on the back of my arcs and my galleys like I do think that we let our brains run away with us in that sense Um, and I think like I think that's also part of the reason why I do honestly think it is very healthy to like step away from social media if you're capable of it if you're like. You know, if you have the physical and financial ability, then I think, and mental ability, then I think it's really great to be able to go in person to events. Because I was telling you about this yesterday, Claribel, like every time I go to an in-person event and talk to people in person, it's always a positive experience. Yes. I always have a great time, and the conversation is mostly very positive about like the the fun things we're doing, fun things that are possible. And even if there's like any sense of like, uh, like, you know, a group of authors getting together and venting about things, it's like, it feels more like you're kind of like shooting the breeze with your coworkers after work. Right. Like, and it, and less like, like, let's, like, let's drag people. Let's, you know, talk about dumpster fire stuff. Like it's, it's more person to person and nuanced. And I love that. And I feel so much healthier like mentally after those times so I do think like it's good to get that perspective and it's very new for me actually like it's really recent like it's only since I've been doing book events which has only been like in the past like six weeks because my book has been out for a month oh my god tomorrow is my one month anniversary oh yay happy anniversary Wicked Fox everybody
0: if you haven't already bought Wicked Fox you could buy it everywhere books are sold like <laughs> everywhere even though Kat thought it wasn't at barnes and noble when the book <laughs> came out it actually is she was just looking in the wrong section um so you guys go pick that up right now like press pause go to the store pick it up and then come back and press play
1: yeah all right and hold also, on let's, hold to... on hold
0: on they're going to the store hold on
1: oh okay I now they're wait. pausing
0: it okay all right now you unpaused it you're back isn't wasn't that easy now you have <laughs>
1: And also, you, you probably could, like, stopped and got, like, a coffee or a tea or something at the cafe, at the bookstore, totally. maybe you, like, saw a friend or, like, talked to a really cool, like, employee. Took a good like, poop. that was so fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm also going to take this chance to have confidence in myself and um, yes. be, like, ask for what I desire, and if you have read the book... And if you would like to leave a review for it, I would super-duper appreciate that. The best place to leave reviews, honestly, are on retail sites. And if I'm being completely honest, even though uh, Amazon is kind of problematic, Amazon is probably the number one place to leave consumer reviews. Yeah. So if you'd like to do that, I would super appreciate it. Do
0: um, it. Do it. <laughs> Listen, Write or Die is free. And we actually invest money into this podcast so that we can send a message out to everyone and help writers. So the best way to support us is to buy our books and yeah, do it, do it. Um, yeah. One thing, like going back to what you're saying about going to events and how that's helped you. That's actually been one of the best parts of my day job because I've been traveling to events for the past six years And I tell people all the time Twitter is not all of publishing specifically because of what you just said, which is when you're surrounded by book people in real life, you realize, like, oh, people are actually mostly nice. (laughs) And um, it really does help you get perspective on everything. Um, Unfortunately, it is not something that everybody can do. And that really sucks because not everybody's in New York. Not everybody um, gets to travel and go to these shows and be exposed to that. So. I've noticed myself that there are people who are sort of, like, separated from the publishing world and only get the perspective of online book Twitter and, like, the world um, through that, through that through social media, and a lot of times it's a little bit skewed because they only see the bad parts of it, and that really sucks because I feel like it could be really, really discouraging. Um, but 150% you need to try to remember that Twitter is only a small part of the publishing world. And also, you mentioned, um, you know, being focused on, like, your marketing plan and all those different things. And I just want to say that I don't think that there's anything wrong with being focused on those things and being wor- – worried about them or concerned about them because it's a business you know what I mean you Mm -hmm. you sort of have to know those things and in any other industry it would be normal for you to to be aware of those things and to be sort of um looking at them I think the problem comes in when you're worried about those things because you're worried about other people's perception of you because of them yeah I Um, agree it's the same thing with uh something like hitting the New York Times list right like if you if you hit the list or if you don't what matters is with the with the Times list is that that list can open doors for you. If people treat you differently socially because of because of the list, they are the assholes that I was talking about before. You know what I mean? And they're not the people that you want in your corner anyway. But it is an opportunity. It does open doors for you in other respects. So I think if you look at everything through a professional lens instead of a social lens like how are other authors going to perceive me because of this in sort of like a shitty way um then it really helps you know and I think that for me because I've worked in in the publishing sphere for for so many years now I I always look at things like that and I don't really focus on like book deals or or those those kinds of things until it's affecting my career in a way that I need to research it if that makes any sense like if I'm looking for an agent, who have they sold to and for how much? If I'm uh, researching editors, that I might um, sell my book to, same thing. But in terms of, like, every day, I don't think we really need that information. That information is for our agents to know, not us. Um, so I think it's learning to sort of um, compartmentalize these This this information and when you need it versus when you don't and why it's important versus why it's not. It's not important because of other people's perception of you. That doesn't fucking matter unless you're being a jerk, then you need to check yourself. But if it's just because you feel that people aren't going to respect you because you don't have a certain status, you don't want those people's respect anyway. There's plenty of other people in publishing who are lovely and who are going to love you for who you are and for the quality of your book.
1: I agree. And and I, I do think like, I do think it's hard because honestly, like the way that the way that like we gauge our success is so random and subjective. Like there's no, like I like in a, like in one of our past interviews, I literally asked like, how would, how would you define a successful author? Like as they're starting out their career And like, it's really hard. It really is like outside of monetary, like measurements, it's, it's hard to say if someone has a successful career, like, like it has, has like a loyal readership or has like a a good book, you know, like literally what is a good book? You know, you don't, you can't define that. So I think that sometimes we look to our community to tell us if we're doing okay. Um, But which is not a a completely bad thing. Right. I just think it becomes bad when, like, an other people's opinions are more important than our own sense of self-worth. And, and like, um, you know, Claribel and I talk about this all the time in the sense of, like, it's actually, you know, I think more than any other industry that I've experienced, um, it being in publishing and being an author and being an artist... Um, it's really important for us to recognize how much of our self worth comes from external validation, and we have to work on overcoming that. I don't think that it's possible for you to completely not care about external validation, and I think that I don't think that you shouldn't seek out a- approval from like your peers. I do think that there is a healthier balance than some of us are practicing right now, myself included. I'm literally, like, subtweeting myself right now. (laughs) (laughs) Because I definitely, I care so much about what other people think, not only in terms of, like, my ability to do things, but in terms of, like, do you think I'm a good person? Do you like me? Do you think I'm funny? Do you think I'm fun to hang out with? Like, it's a big issue that I've, I've had since I was a kid. I've always known about it. I go to therapy for it. But... It's definitely um, something that I've had to grapple with way more since becoming an author because being an author means that you're opening yourself up for so many random people you've never met to make judgments on you and your work. And it's hard. I'm not going to lie. It's super duper hard. Um, it's why we tell people not to go on Goodreads. You know? <laughs> Don't do it. Um, it's why we tell people not to Google their book or like, you know, there was a point where I was like, I'm not going on Goodreads, but I was definitely searching the hashtag for my book. And like, what was I, what did I think I was going to find? Did I only think I was going to find like people saying nice things? People use hashtags to be like, I hate this book (laughs) as well. (laughs) So, um, yeah, no, that was a hard lesson I had to learn, but I, it's part of the process, the growing pains of being an author
0: absolutely and you know when when I say you shouldn't worry about like what you were saying when you shouldn't worry about um what authors are thinking I don't mean at all like obviously um you want to get that external validation um but I think that you can get that through sort of like healthy ways that aren't like people who are judging you based on arbitrary things if that makes any sense like the quality of your book versus yeah. you hitting the list you know what I mean because the two things yeah. aren't always equal <laughs> it doesn't always sort of match up um you know so I just mean um I, I think we tend to focus on the negative so much um mm-hmm. that I I don't want people to lose sight of the people who are supporting them and sort of like taking bookstagram pictures and like all of those like really amazing fun things because those are really important yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. and honestly that's kind of like the best part is like the is like seeing fans interact with your book is the is like one of the best parts of being an author like and i and i'm say, i say this like saying being an author is different than being a writer and i'm stealing that delineation from publishing crawl i think it was jj who said that jj um, SJ jones um, her book is Winter Song. Um, she's the co-host of Publishing Crawl podcast. Yeah, Definitely ha- listen to that one.
0: Yeah, we have a. We actually have an episode with JJ.
1: Um, so I'll link that below if you guys can listen to it. It's great. Yeah, and um, she's so smart. She's worked in the industry for a very long time, and there was one episode I think it's about author brand, but I might be wrong. I'll try to look it up so Clairabelle can put it in the show notes, but. Um, she pretty much says like being an author is different than being a writer, which I completely agree with. Being a writer is someone who sits in their sits like at in their office and they write their book and, and they do the art. Someone who is an author is the person who that incorporates like the publicity, the interactions with the community, like the public face of this of you as a as an author, which is completely different than your private persona, which is more in line with being a writer. Um, So as an author, one of the best parts about being an author is that you get to interact with your readers and watch them interact with your work and watch them make like. Bookstagrams and art, and it's beautiful, and it's it's so it's such a bonus to the act of creating stories.
0: Absolutely, so, it's yeah. super fun. I actually um, just had someone tag me on social media because their nine year old was um, reading Ghost Squad instead of looking at um, Once in a Lifetime Glacier Views on vacation. <laughs>
1: saw, oh wait, I saw that. that so nice it was so. Cute.
0: Uh, and I was I love cracking it. up I was like this mm-hmm. is amazing um so yeah ghost squad uh, better than glaciers and everyone go pick up ghost squad as well because that is there for your pre-ordering pleasure and you yeah. should get it right now for
2: we'll sure. take another and break also- for you
0: if you need us to but get yeah. get and- both both books all right so today's interview I am so super excited about I have probably two Favorite all-time young adult authors. One of them is Holly Black and the other one is Lee Bardugo and Lee Bardugo's on the show today. Um, she is the number one New York Times bestselling author of fantasy novels and the creator of the Grishaverse. She sold over three million copies worldwide, and her latest book, Ninth House, comes out October eighth of this year, and it's her adult debut. Lee, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I feel like half your audience is gonna be like, Ooh, Holly Black
3: is on and now they're gonna be (laughs) No, she was she was already (laughs) she was already
1: on. But that's a good
0: time. Absolutely. Um, so the you've had a really interesting road to becoming a writer. You had a lot of jobs. you were a makeup artist, which I'm not surprised because your makeup is always really nice. Um, <laughs> but can you tell the audience a little bit about how you became a writer, what your journey looked like, and uh, just share all that juicy fun info with us?
3: <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I well I I guess it's sort of you're right, it's a long and winding road um i always wanted to be a writer i wanted to write novels from from the time i was a kid uh, but i really had no idea what i was doing and you know my path looked pretty good on paper um you know i was one of those kids who kids who entered writing contests i went to a fancy college and i majored in english and then you know i had to pay rent I had to pay my bills had to pay off loans um And I also, you know, I didn't, it's not like I was one of those people who was writing a book in college. I was mostly just trying to keep up and, you know, writing a lot of fiction and poetry on the side. But I I really had no idea how to write a book. And then, um, so I had a lot of jobs. I started out in advertising. That was horrible. Um, (laughs) It really was. Absolutely horrible. I was a temp for a long time. Then I interned at the Advocate. um, i slept on my friend's couch and broke up her relationship, but he was a jerk. So,
0: (laughs) wait a minute, wait a minute. Was it because it was just like weird that you were like the extra person on the couch? (laughs) Not me. It wasn't
3: forbidden love. Um, Yeah, their love was not strong enough to endure
1: Lee Bardugo. Wait, Um, that should be on a T-shirt because that's true about your books too. (laughs)
3: <laughs> see, she and i have stayed close friends actually she was one of the was maybe the first person to read shadow and bone when i finished wow. a draft of it um so oh my shout god out to Michelle
0: Chihara. yeah do you think um, he ever goes to bookstores and like sees your book and he and like shakes his fist at the sky <laughs> yeah. i I'd
3: like to think there's actually a long line of dudes who do that <laughs> go to bookstores and curse my name like Gold. I feel like I become more powerful every time somebody does that like lightning splits across the sky and I'm like ah oh, yes feed me amazing uh, yeah so yeah so I I, I was doing freelance journalism um, then I worked for dot .com I moved to Seattle and I lived there for a year, which I actually really loved, but I really hated my job. Um, and then I got a job working for Fox, and moved down to Los Angeles um, and built websites. And then I had actually a really good gig writing movie trailers for a living, which I really loved. Um, you know, like I always use in a land without justice. <laughs> <laughs> but the truth is. I was the only woman on staff, and the reason I was hired was so that they could pitch to companies like Disney for teen movies and romantic comedies. And so I never got like the action movie gigs. I always oh. got the like Jenny was the girl who couldn't catch a break. <laughs> 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 but for a day job, it was really good. And understand that by now, in the timeline of my life, we're already—I'm already in um, my late twenties, early thirties—and. Then um, my dad passed away and I, he had had a very long run up, a very long illness, um, long battle with cancer and so long that we sort of thought maybe he would, you know, just there would be some new medication. I don't know if right. either of you guys have ever gone through an illness with a loved one. But yep, both of us. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so you're, yep. you're playing this weird game, right? Where you're like. You know you know what you're up against, but your, your, human, your faulty human brain just keeps thinking, they'll invent something new, yep. something yeah. else will come along. Um, and eventually we ran out of options. And, um, and despite this long run-up, his death hit me incredibly hard. And I ended up quitting my job and uh, went into makeup and special effects. And that's what I was doing when I finally managed to write um, my first draft and my first
0: novel. Was, um, Shadow and Bone the very first book that you ever wrote or did you write anything before that? It was the first
3: book I finished. I okay. had started a
0: lot of
3: books. Um, I had this, uh, uh, my, my MO was that I would, um, start and I would get about, you know, one or two chapters in. So I would get really like uh, through the first few chapters or even through the first act. And then I would get stuck. I would completely lose momentum. And I didn't know anything about process at the time. I sort of thought, you know, I had... When I speak at schools, I talk a lot about... um, And to programs, I talk a lot about um, the images we have of people in culture creating work, uh, creative work. And they're always, you know, you get the idea and then there's this tremendous creative drive that pushes you through, but there's really never any conversation about culture or or, or about um, structure or process or revision. So I had no idea what it took to write a book. And I sort of thought that if it was your calling, you would just know, right? Like it would be, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. when we're young, the reason we become writers is because we love to write. And and there's this thing that you tap into when you just love writing. But that is, um, while that is a magical place, I, for me at least, that will not sustain me through a book. Um, it will sustain me through a few chapters. It will hopefully come back to me when I'm working on a part of the book I particularly love or didn't anticipate but that's only part of what the work of a novel is, and what I didn't understand at all, and which I what I try to be very candid about is that um, the process of writing a book is really being comfortable with how bad you are at writing a book <laughs> for a period of time, and just understanding that that is that that discomfort is a necessary part. That feeling of daily failure is a necessary part of it. Oh, well, and, that's, that's good. <laughs> You rest with these long bouts of failure for the payoff of the days when you feel like a genius. And those are glorious, but they're <laughs> the bulk of the process, at least not for me, alas. Um, so I didn't know any of that. So I would start, I would peter out. And um, by the time I got the idea for Shadow and Bone, when I got that idea, it's not like I sat up and was like, now I will write my book. I thought, why bother? You know, why, why start one more thing I'm not going to finish or one more thing I'm going to fail at? And then I was on the phone with that very friend, Michelle, whose um, couch I had once slept on, and I was talking to her, and I was really in a bad place. I was in a terrible relationship. I was in a job I didn't particularly like and wasn't very good at. I was broke. And um, she said, you know, you need to reapply the MFA. I applied to some MFA programs, and then just, I hadn't made a decision not to go or to go. I just, in my depression, just let it not do anything. And she said, you should be writing. And I thought, I don't want to be in the MFA. I want to write a book and I'm going to do it in the next six months. And I don't know why that was the moment when that clicked for me, but I got off the phone and I outlined Shadow and Bone and I did it using screenplay structure. And by then I'd been living in LA for a while. So of course I'd taken a screenwriting
0: class. <laughs> right. So it's it, by law, you are meant to <laughs> Before you so, get your license in LA, amazing. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> a botox and take a the
3: class. Amazing, exactly. So I um, so yeah, I went and I i i sat down and I wrote this outline, this beat by beat outline, and it was a mess. It had lots of questions in it and and blank spaces, and I thought, I'm just gonna write a terrible book. And I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just, it's going to be really, really bad. And then um, then I'll be able to write something that's good. And when I had finally reached the end of that draft, which did take me about six months, um, I thought, actually, I quite like this. Um, and there's enough in here that I can use to make a book that I like more. And um, yeah, so that was the way that happened. That was what became Shadow and Bone and that eventually became the Shadow and Bone Trilogy.
0: Was it always planned as a trilogy or that just sort of came later?
3: The, when I was first writing the draft, my only goal was to get to the end of that first book. And then about halfway through, the uh, right, and probably halfway through really revising it, I thought, you know, the ending of this feels very false to me. It feels bigger than this. And so I started keeping notes for a second and third book. But at the time, I didn't even know if you know, I had just started to entertain the idea that, like, okay, I could really do this. I had really finished this book, and now I could go out and um, and, and maybe try to get an agent, maybe try to get published. The concept that I would sell a trilogy was way beyond my um, hopes or expectations at the time, and the idea that it would grow into something that is at at this point, I guess, I'm writing my eighth book in in this universe is. Just sort of, still, it is bizarre to me that that be, that it began with such a small moment and such a small idea.
1: I, what I really like about like how you explained your process of like actually just sitting down and writing the book was that you said to yourself, "I'm just going to write a bad book." Yeah, and that that's such a great thing, a great mindset. It sounds. <laughs> Bear with me. (laughs) I I think it's a great mindset because I think so many people keep themselves from actually sitting down and getting the words on the page because when they're writing it, they're like, this is shitty. And they're just so afraid of like how bad it looks for this like zero draft. But it's really great to hear like someone who wrote like such a beloved, you know, um, world and series that. Like, you weren't sitting down trying to create, like, the next bestseller. You were sitting down trying to just, like, write a story however shitty it was. And that's how everyone
3: should be. You know, it's by any means necessary when you're writing a book. It doesn't matter how messy or scrambled those early drafts are at all. There's nobody – nobody writes a good first draft. Literally nobody writes a good first draft. And there are writers I know who I respect a great deal who revise as they go. Um, and I think that it, it, everybody's process is different. Some people use an outline, some people don't use an outline. Um, I think that everybody relates to their work differently. And one of the toughest things about becoming a working writer is learning what your pati- particular process is. Um, and no process is going to spare you from the pain of writing that book. There's no <laughs> process, it's hard to tell you. Yeah. Uh, But, but, but you will, there are processes that will help you to feel like you have control over what you're doing and that you are moving forward in the work. And yes, like cutting off that editorial voice. And I think this is actually really important because if you guys or your listeners are reviewing or blogging, um, you're engaging that critical editorial voice all of the time and you're strengthening it. It's like a muscle that you're strengthening. And my advice often is to just to, to take a break, take a hiatus and be in the space where you can make that editorial voice shut up, so that you can really work um, unselfconsciously in that first draft. Um, and and you have to let go of your own taste. I think Ira Glass has um, this wonderful story about how there's a period of time when you know what good work is, and you know you're not creating it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> reader you know what good is and in your head it's great and on the page it is not great so again that that difference that discrepancy is um is the discomfort of being an author and i think you know the revision process is getting you bit by bit by bit closer to that thing that that sounds the way you meant it to in your head.
0: I really love that. Um, yeah. And it's good to know that even you suffer still because <laughs> I All definitely suffer and yeah. um, it is relatable AF. Um, so <laughs> y- you, you wrote uh, Shadow and Bone. And so what was your next step? Like how did you figure out like how to query and like who you wanted to query? Wh- how did you handle that whole process? Um, I
3: I mean, I was lucky enough to be doing this in the age of the internet. So I got online and I just started Googling and researching. Um, There was a site called, you know, I think there were, there was agent query and query tracker, and maybe query, there were a bunch of sites that, um, where you could see what deals had sold and what people were looking for. And then almost every agency had a website where they talked about what they were looking for. There was a Site that um, called Literary Rambles that had a lot of stuff about why. and I lit. loved that site. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I mean, what I quickly learned was that absolutely no one was looking for the kind of fantasy I had written um, at the time. It was really unfashionable. What was that? Just wasn't what was hot. It was you know um, not just vampires and werewolves, but it was also dystopian and steampunk and sci-fi. Sort of anything but epic fantasy was what people seem to want. And in fact, they would, agents would say, you know, anything but that, I don't want it. So I thought, wow, I really screwed up. (laughs) Um, but then I came across this blog post from Joanna Volpe, um, where she was talking about how much she loved Lord of the Rings and how much she was looking for a secondary world fantasy. And I thought, well, I might as well roll the dice. So she was among the people that I queried, um, you know, I w- worked out a pitch letter and all that kind of thing. I had my friends read my draft, obviously. I did not query without getting feedback and doing notes and revision on the draft. Um, but yeah, that was a that was process. And then I
0: was lucky enough to get a call from Joe. Amazing. I love Joe, she's the best. <laughs> she's very lovable. <laughs> So um, how did you deal with the whole being a debut thing? Was it hard for you? Was it sort of like a whirlwind? I know that you've talked before about how um, it was a little bit of fake it to make it for you in terms of like making bookmarks and swag and making it look like everything was just put together. But you were doing a lot of the sort of behind the scenes for yourself. Um, wh- what do you think you sort of learned during that time?
3: Um you know, I think that the process of being a debut, and you guys can please jump in on this. Um, I haven't debuted yet, every, but Kat. Well, market,
1: <laughs> I'm just all emotions. <laughs>
3: <laughs> the market's very different now than it was. I was very lucky in the sense that I was sort of at one of, there have been sort of peaks and valleys when it comes to YA, and I was lucky enough to um, have a book out in one of the peak moments when the market was hot. Um, That said, I think that being a debut is really learning. For me, it was a very steep learning curve because I didn't know very much about publishing. I I knew embarrassingly little. And it was about really listening to um, people talk about their experiences and sort of trying to put aside some of my ego and my own competitiveness to just absorb really what other people were doing and how this really worked. You know, when I got my book deal, I didn't know anybody who had a book deal. So I thought I was really special come to find out a lot of people have book deals. <laughs> and, um, and, and that I didn't have the biggest book deal and that other people were going to have a different debut story than I had. And that is always going to be the case. Um, and so I think sort of understanding what, uh, what I was going to have to do, what I wanted to do, the way that I wanted to sort of present myself and my books. You know, there's always the the cover struggle. I, things that I'd never understood were, I sort of like, well, you sit down with your publishers and you talk about it and you all <laughs> come up with a beautiful cover <laughs> of your book. <laughs> you know, my <I> uh, sweet <laughs> child it's not like that at all. Um, and sort of also understanding that I think something, and this is something I've talked about on Twitter a little bit, is in some ways I feel like um, some of us did too good a job of, of faking it, of, of pretending that um, particularly the early years of our careers were smooth sailing. And I think we did that because we, we wanted to look successful and we wanted it's like, you know, they say if you encounter a mountain lion, just look bigger than you are. Um, and I feel like we were all encountering a mountain lion and trying to just seem as big and as important as possible. And I think the only problem with that is I think it gave some young writers a really false impression of what, um, those early years are like. I did events on my first, um, you know, I only did group tours, um, for the first couple, three, maybe three, first three years of my career, my first three books. Um, and we did events with Fierce Reads tour, where I swear there were maybe six people in the audience. Wow. You know?
2: Wow.
3: Yeah, I know. And those are the ones who don't take a picture of for Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> and I had many festivals and conventions where I sat next to big authors who had these long lines. And nobody knew who I was. Nobody knew, had heard of Oh, uh, I'm sure your book is, they're all so nice to you. There's so much pity. You know, I'm sure your book is good too. And I would just sit there and hand out my bookmarks hand out my buttons and keep a smile on my face and some part of you is just oh you know it, it it's a little painful but it's also part of the process and I'll tell you something it makes you so much more grateful when you walk into a room of 300 people who came to see you absolutely and drove their there for you and when you get to meet them in line you never take that shit for granted you just never do because you went through the ringer you know
0: yeah, absolutely so
3: yeah, but we don't. Like, that's just not something people want to talk about. And I don't blame them for not wanting to talk about it on Instagram or saying, you know, oh, all my friends are at this conference and I didn't get invited or all the sort of truth of these things is not something that um, social media really encourages us to relate. Um, Even when we're not doing a highlight reel, we are engaging even with our own anxieties in a very performative fashion. So I think that 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 has created sort of some false ideas about what it means to be um, a new player uh, in, in this field. And I think you know the most important thing I could say to people, and I realize I've gone on and on. And on um, but you
0: have it, not; you're good. We're taking notes right okay. now, yes. <laughs> seriously. Um, but
3: w- the most important thing I would say is, you know, it is not a, a sprint; it's a marathon. Which you know we've heard that before, but it's really not about your first book. It's not even about your first series. It's about your second series. It's about your third series it's about book after book after book. And I think we don't want to believe that we want to believe, you know, you write a brilliant debut, or you write a brilliant first series, and then you're made, you know, it's happened, you've arrived. But that's, and for a very privileged few, that will be the case. But for the rest of us, it's going, you're going to have to keep hustling, and you're going to have to keep inventing, and you're going to have to keep loving the work that you do. Because, it is the business of this business is quite hard. So you have to maintain your relationship with the work and with the words in order to sustain yourself through it.
1: I love that. I, but also it's interesting. I was um, talking to another debut earlier this week and you're um, we kind of talking about like, Oh, what are your plans for your next book, or your next series and things like that. Um, and we're kind of having a conversation about the fact that it's a little bit frustrating when you're first starting out because you have all these like plans and ideas for how you'd love your career to go, but publishing is so <laughs> slow. It's such a hurry up and wait kind of a situation. And it gets really frustrating. Um, and even knowing like there are amazing people like you out there who like had to go through the struggle for like five years before you really had like, you're such a solid foothold and, and, um, even knowing that, like, logically, like, the emotions within us are, like, still really intense being recent debuts. Mm -hmm. So um, I was wondering, like, do you, um, like, if you can remember, like, thinking back to, like, those moments where, like, maybe you felt that same frustration, like, what kind of, like, inspired you or, like, helped give you comfort or helped give you balance during those times where it just felt really frustrating?
3: I think that, and this is still true for me now,
1: um, and it's
3: one of the reasons that I am sort of struggling to find a balance right now, is that the, the thing that always grounds me is writing. It's work. Okay? It's having something else as a counterbalance to all the craziness. As writers, when we are with the work, we are gods. Okay, There's nobody else <laughs> who has, yeah, I know, just so many. <laughs> but we, we control that entirely. As soon as that draft is out of our hands as soon as it's in someone else's inbox that relationship with the work ends and then we begin the process of having no control at all Mm
2: -hmm. we
3: have so little control in publishing and many people have gotten the illusion that if you just have enough twitter followers or you just have enough instagram likes that that is somehow going to move the needle in making you a writer and again for a few people that may be true but for most people, nope, we can't move the needle. It's about your cover, it's about your marketing plan, it's about distribution and placement, and who else came out that week, and you know, uh, keeping the legs on a book, and what happens to be a cultural moment or isn't a cultural moment at the time. We have no control, and that's excruciating. So the thing for me that I return to again and again, and that I encourage people to return to, is again the work. If you're writing you're going to feel a lot more stable. If you're working on the next thing, even if it's just taking notes, you know, building some some, for scenes, for characters or a world you want to work on, those are the things that are going to sustain you. Because if that first book isn't a hit, you want to have something else in your pocket. Or if you're querying, if that first book doesn't get you an agent, you want to have something else you're working on so that you aren't just one thing. And even if you are somebody who is lucky enough to be a star your debut year, you still want to be working on something else. You don't want to be the person who had one series, one book,
1: yeah. You know, yeah, one
3: idea. It's, again, the business cuts you off from the creative part of yourself. And so it's hard to do that. But really, that kind of thing, that kind of work, continuing to do that is what will sustain you. All the rest, we don't have control over. Continuing to deliver books new books, short stories,
0: essays, that we can control, and that's the kind of thing that builds a career. And that's so funny, too, because um, whenever I I joke around on Twitter a lot about um, my agent, Susie, um, hi, Susie, I'm sorry, I'm annoying, Um, but um, I'll, I'll, like, send her an email, like, I'm freaking out, Um, blah, 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 and she'll be like, so what are you working on next? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, until you are actually sit down and do it like it sort of sounds like bullshit a little bit like i'm always Uh, like how is how is working on the next book gonna help me now if everything's ruined and but then when you sit down and you get lost in the new world that you're creating or the new um the new story it really helps so 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 much and um and
3: the people who survive in this business and thrive in this business are the people who continue to create books who continue to put themselves out there and take the beating like that is that is what that's how a career is built.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, now, I will say, too, there are other strategies as well. Like, you were talking about emailing your agent. Having having a good agent who you have that kind of relationship with is huge. Having friends who are not in publishing, mm-hmm. who will sit around and talk about things that have nothing to do about this cover reveal, or this person's marketing plan, or what kind of (laughs) deal this person signed, like, you need to be around people who are not in publishing, and get some perspective, like, remember (laughs) what it's like, and to remember, you know how I said, like, oh, I thought I was so special to have a book deal, Mm -hmm. you know what, we are special to have book deals, that's actually an extraordinary thing, and it's so easy to lose track of, so we need to celebrate all those things, all those moments, and not instantly give way to the anxiety of the next thing. Which I, I say this, but it is one of my greatest challenges. Yeah,
0: that that's super relatable. And I'll also say that doing non-publishing things and like. N- forbidding yourself from talking about publishing when you're with your author friends is also really effective and fun. Um, like, one of my um, best author friends, we always talk about him on here. Hi, Peter. Um, we went to a concert <laughs> together in the winter, and we, like, waited online. We were freezing cold. We had this. We had so much fun. We couldn't talk because it was too loud. And it's just nice to do things like outside of the publishing world together also. Like, don't just hang out at book launches. And when you do hang out like talk about stuff like talk about your life that and stuff wow. that's not book related like you should have other interests
3: <laughs> yes talk about reality and tv Go yes that. Love talk love. about recipes <laughs> talk about jewelry and you, you are learning my interest jewelry perfume, food. Um, but, but by, like indulge those things I actually think doing all that stuff makes you a better writer because your brain is not locked into, again, these things that you have so little control over.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And for me, I can't get ideas or, like, inspiration for stuff unless I'm out there living my life also. Like, if I'm always sort of, like, locked into industry stuff, it it's draining, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So you mentioned having 300 people at a launch, and I was actually, um, I think that's pretty accurate for the King of Scars launch, um, which I was at, and um, literally your line, and I know because I was on it, was around the corner from the the strand, and it was raining, and there were so many people waiting for you. Um, I want to know how it feels for you to sort of deal with fandom surrounding your series has it been really weird for you to adjust to it especially now that we all know that there's a series coming you know
3: i guess i would say this interacting with my readers has never been difficult it's always been really lovely interacting with fandom i think is a little bit different Mm -hmm. and i didn't really start to understand that until i'd say around book three um i like i said when you've done enough events where it's you talking to the other people on the panel and that's about it. Um, you, you really are grateful. Like I, I, I always tell people and I even tell, we're planning the ninth house tour now. And, um, and I said, look, you got to understand when I'm going into a tour, I always feel like I'm throwing a birthday party and I'm just afraid nobody's going to come. You know, this is this. I am never going to stop being that person who thinks she's going to walk into an empty room where they will be like my mom and <laughs> my friends who are sitting. In, I, I, it doesn't matter how many events I do; that is always going to be my fear. So I feel tremendous relief and joy and gratitude when I see people who have actually, you know, gotten on the train, gotten their parents to take them, you know, driven two hours, whatever it is. Um, to come be there, like that, that never goes away. I will say that, um, I guess there are two things. One thing is that, you know, we have had to start ticketing my events, and we've had to start limiting book, numbers of books at the events, and um, we're not going to do posed photos, just candids for Ninth House, because we realized how much that slows the line down. Um, I always feel tremendous guilt when we put these parameters around things, but I also, you know, what I didn't understand was, I remember I have a friend who's um, very successful, and I remember her coming back from this event and saying, oh, my God, there were 300 people there, and at the time, I thought, oh, God, I would kill, I would kill to have 300 people in my life. And what I didn't understand was that um, when you have 300 people in an event or 150 people or however many people, you know, you're probably not getting home until midnight. And then you're getting up, and, and and you have, if you've done it right, you've given those people everything you have. You know, I never want somebody to walk away from one of my signings feeling like they were sorry they waited or that it wasn't worth their time. Um, so you are, and and I am not a natural extrovert. I do a good imitation of I'm an extrovert, but I'm not a very good, I, I'm you, not really. You do, a,
0: wow. Yeah, you do a great I'm shocked.
3: <laughs> Um But it, it's very it's very tiring because you you are trying so hard to engage in this very short amount of time um and there's a lot of emotionality too you know like people who if somebody is standing there and telling me about a hard time that they went through or i i never want to check out on them i i want to be as present as i possibly can and i'm a sympathetic cryer. so. If somebody starts crying, I start crying. Oh, <laughs> um, no. So, like, so these events can be sometimes incredibly intense and, um, and you're trying to process all of this and still, be, you know, and, and still sign a book and take a photo and all those things. So, long story short, um, I think that, um, I didn't understand what it meant to come home at midnight and feel that wiped out. And I have, you know, chronic pain issues. Um, so, I'm, my, you know, the issue with my, I have a degenerative bone disease. And so if I'm having a high pain day on top of something like that, it really feels like I've had the shit kicked out of me. Um, And then you have to get up in the morning, you know, pack your bag and head straight to the airport at 6am, you know, to get on, uh, go through security and get through another flight, you know, go there, hope that you can check in early to your hotel, maybe lie down for 50 minutes, maybe change clothes, do your hair and go back again. Um, And so, we have had to start finding ways to limit it or I won't be able to go out on the road. Um, but I still feel like just a lot of guilt over that. So yeah, it's a balance. So I, you are at once grateful and also intimidated by sort of the, the place that you've landed yourself. Um, and fandom is weird. Like, you know, if you've been in a fandom, you know, like, there's a, phantoms have strange relationships with their, their creators. Um, and so far I've been pretty lucky. I have on the whole, um, extremely nice, extremely supportive, um, very engaged, very creative readers. Um, but every so often somebody will come at me swinging and it's always, um, always makes me a little more cautious of engaging the next time, you know? In,
0: in like, at your events or online? No, online. Okay.
3: I've never
1: had anybody get in my face at an event. Oh, that'd, that'd be so scary. Yeah. I feel um, I, I feel like online has completely changed the game about how um, how fandoms interact with, with creators. Our um, our really good friend Meg wrote her uh, her graduate thesis about like um, how people feel like entitled to um, authors and like authors' personal time and personal space more and more because of like online fandoms, um, and it's just it's an it's such a terrifying but also kind of like I, I want I I guess intriguing um, concept. It yeah. just really feels like it's changed the game, <laughs> right? Because I mean, very yeah.
0: True. yeah, because authors are like they become sort of more in the celebrity f- uh, sphere I feel um lately um oh or yeah brand. are such a thing um, yeah um and I think that's it wasn't always like that you know at least yeah. for the majority of people um so I want to talk to you a little bit about Ninth House because <laughs> first of all I'm really mad at you second of <laughs> all <laughs> and it's is spoiler
1: free right Clarabelle yeah it's so spoiler free like
0: I'm you. just uh, it's spoiler-free. I just want Lee to know that I am about my anger. and um, <laughs> But I do want to know more about the book. I have a couple of questions, but I want to know when the idea for Ninth House came to you and sort of when you wrote it and what's been sort of the evolution of the book. Um, well, I, it's
3: hard for me to pinpoint when the idea came to me um there are certain and and it's so funny because you know that's probably the number one question we get as authors is where where did the idea come from Mm -hmm. and but as a reader it's also one of my favorite questions so Mm -hmm. I can't complain (laughs) um I you know when I was an undergrad I have a very specific specific memory of walking home from the post office reading a letter and looking up from my little pile of pages and seeing this giant mausoleum to my left. And I, when I say giant, I mean a two-story high apartment building-sized mausoleum. And then on my right was the cemetery, the Grove Street Cemetery, which is smack dab in the middle of the Yale campus. And there's a huge Neo-Egyptian gate with these big redstone pillars that are topped by um, lotuses and acanthus leaves. And there's this huge inscription over this gate to the cemetery that just says, the dead shall be raised. <laughs> so I'm like, so young goth me is just basically <laughs> like, ah! Like this, <laughs> this, I, what I look back on that is, you know, I can't say that the idea for the book came from me then, but for me campus became this place of just tremendous buried magic and I think this is something that all people who read fantasy or write fantasy or love fantasy have in common which is that we sense these kind of cracks in the ordinary world and sometimes it's you know the crack is that that the 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 wardrobe the back of the wardrobe and sometimes it's Um, you know, an imitation via owl, or sometimes it's, you know, you're in the woods, and you know that there's something else in the woods with you. We have this sense for the magical seeping into the ordinary world, and we just want more of it. Um, And for me, that was the moment when New Haven and Yale really started to crack open for me in that way. So that mausoleum turned out to be Book and Snake, Mm -hmm. which is um, one of the ancient eight, which is one of these um, sort of the oldest and most powerful secret societies at Yale. Mm -hmm. And I don't know when the idea kind of started cooking, but I can tell you that when I signed with my agent, she said, you know, what what else have you got in mind? What do you want to work on? And it was one of the first ideas that I pitched to her. Um, but we didn't know what was going to happen with the Grishaverse novels and how long I would be working on those or what other opportunities would be coming my way. And we also didn't really know where it belonged because it didn't feel like it fit into young adult. Um, And I didn't have the, uh, I didn't have the clout to, to simply open the door to adult at that time. So, it had to wait. And every, you know, every few years or so I'd say, Hey, you know that idea? And she's like, yeah, yeah. Next year, next year. <laughs> and we kept it up. And finally, um, when I was supposed to start working on Crooked Kingdom, I had just come off of tour from Six of Crows and the race to get Six of Crows was, you know, this, um, it was the longest book I had written at the time. Um, and Uh, and was probably one of the most challenging in terms of craft. And I was totally wiped out. I was just exhausted. And I was supposed to dive right into writing Crooked Kingdom. And I said, you know what? I can't. I'm going to take a couple of weeks off, and I'm going to write the proposal for Ninth House. And I'm going to research this book. And I had the most wonderful time doing it. And started writing early pages, and I sent it to Joe. And we're talking about when I was going to get to write it. So, you know, that was sort of the, and in terms of when I got to write it, it was really in between other projects,
2: um,
3: which was hard because um, I was really switching between, you know, going straight from writing King of Scars to writing, straight from writing Cookie Kingdom to writing Ninth House and then straight from writing, and then Wonder Woman was in there and Language of Thorns was in there. And then, you know, it was finding these places um, and, and space to write this book that I just desperately wanted to write.
0: Oh man, I, I, I really love it. I honestly feel like, and I hope this is not an insult to, um, you know the Grisha, ver- the Grisha books, uh, but I feel like Ninth House is your best book so far. Um I'm a very slow reader. You can ask Cat. And I read Ninth House <laughs> in like a week and a half. Like I read yeah, it real fast. Every moment that I had free, I was just, oh. just consumed by it. Um. <laughs>
3: And I'm also, also not, that's not an insult. We should get better, you know. <laughs> that's okay, we should and get better. Our books should get better. You don't want people to be like, "Well, this This wasn't <laughs> well, as good as," you know,
1: like. Well, no, we
3: it's,
1: get better. It's also that's because ultimately a thing too, though. Yeah. Is that like I love when an author's books get mm-hmm. better, like because mm-hmm. I think like when when like their fifth or sixth book is like 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 miles better or like not. Be, this is so subjective too, but like feels like like more like well crafted it doesn't make me enjoy their first book any less it just means that like I really enjoy the growth within this author that I already enjoy yeah Um, I'm always taken aback
3: when I'm very proud of all my books for different reasons but I knew when I wrote Six of Crows that it was the best thing I had written thus far and I and I don't say that with arrogance I just say you know I, I had learned more about my craft You know, like I, I had, and so when people are like, I like the trilogy better, I'm like, okay, like I'm delighted, but I'm surprised by it. Um, but I think it also depends what kind of reader you are and where people are going to engage with your books. And I think, look, I, I think we have to, as authors, not disavow our early work. Um, you know, we can look at it and say, I wish I'd done this differently. I wish I had done this better, but you have to write those early books or you never get to the later
0: book. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm just mostly afraid of Kaz coming to haunt me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I am such a huge Six of Crows fan. Like, literally, above my bed, I have a print of Kaz and Anaj like overlooking Ketterdam. And I have two um, crochet dolls that I had custom made of them. Like... Oh.
1: <laughs> That's so sweet, it send, really de- it's so cute. Yeah,
0: I'll send you pictures. I'm obsessed. Anyway, <laughs> when when I read Ninth House, I was like, "Let's see." <laughs> <laughs> That's the most terrifying thing. <laughs> Let's see, Miss Bardugo. Um, but it, it's it's incredible. I super love it. Um, so, uh, Ga- Galaxy Stern, Alex Stern, amazing. I am obsessed with her. I love how cranky she is. Um, and I love that she is at least it seems like in the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, she's part Latinx? Yeah. Okay. Um, so what uh what uh what made your decision to sort of like make her half Latinx? Was that like a something that you just always saw her that way or was it like a conscious decision? I'm thrilled about it. Um well, but I'm just like um curious.
3: Yeah, there will be some
0: story reasons.
3: Mm. Um that emerged throughout the series about Alex's origins and her relationship to magic. Um but there were you know one is just the simple fact that I didn't want the person I was endowing with this much power to be white. Mm. Um oh, a mood.
1: I, <laughs> yeah such a mood. We, are, I, we appreciate I, it.
3: I'm trying to, you know, like I said, we we hopefully become more conscious of our decisions narratively and what they are saying to the wider world. And for me, especially writing about a place like Yale, um, that is so much about privilege and power and class Mm -hmm. and race. Uh, I really did not want my hero or heroine to be white. And, um, and I also wanted her to experience, uh, I wanted her to be an outsider Um, in this world in every way possible. Uh, I describe Alex at one point, I think, as saying, you know, she's had her threads cut. Um, She's disconnected from the culture and religion and family that might have um, given her strength uh, to deal with some of the things that have come at her. And, you know, she, her, I grew up in a I am ethnically Jewish, but I grew up in a house. Um, my not only did my mom not go to temple, but my grandparents didn't. They didn't practice. It was an incredibly deeply secular, multi-generationally secular house. Um, and I never knew my biological father really, so I'm disconnected entirely from that side of my family as well. So in many ways, you know, Alex is, uh, and I share that. And I wanted her to. Have to start to draw together and build a network of threads for herself um, to give her strength by the end of the story.
0: I love that she's incredible, and um, I love her so much that it, I <laughs> I put her through so many horrible things. You like, did.
3: Uh, it's really gratifying to hear that that she that you connected with her.
0: Yeah, and she I feel like she's so strong, and you can really see why she makes the decisions that she makes, you know, even if they're not necessarily something that a decision that I would make, it's like, okay, this makes sense, given that she had a really messed up life. Um, I also, it's really funny because you, um, you include Landino in the story. And, um, could you explain a little bit to like our audience what that is?
3: Sure. Um, Ladino is, well, it's almost a dead language now. It's um, very hard to find anybody who speaks it. It's most commonly found in, sometimes in poems, but um, I was introduced, I'm Sephardic, and I first heard Ladino um, when my mom sang me, and again, my mom comes from this very secular background, and in fact, it's my father's side that is um, Sephardic, but she sang me this beautiful Ladino song, Um, and I mean, I didn't even know that my last name was Spanish until a Spanish teacher told me, so, (laughs) um, so there was this, this tremendous disconnect for me between what I understood as Judaism and what actually sort of the wider cultural heritage of Judaism is. And Ladino is a kind of, um... It's a it's a combination of Spanish, Hebrew, and um, and sometimes Greek um, and other languages. Um, it has traces of all of them, and it's really a language of diaspora um, because Jews have lived all over the world. And um, Hebrew, as you know, sort of a, a uh, was usually the language of the book and a religion, but often Jews adopted uh, to the culture around them. And so you get these kind of, I don't want to say a bastardized kind of language, but a, um, a, a, combined language like Ladino. Uh, so yeah, it's really very beautiful. Um, and I am sort of obsessed with this other, there are these romantic ballads, but there's also a lot of death ballads, um, uh, in Sephardic. Um, uh, it, like There are entire categories of Sephardic b- ballads of mourning that are just incredibly strange and beautiful. And there's one that's now, I don't know if it's in your arc, but um, it's the epigraph of the book is a um, a ballad called Death and the Girl. And it's just, it's so, it's a very small, it's a story about a girl who doesn't fear death because she has strong family and the strong brothers and she lives in this beautiful place where there's apples that are always a plume and, uh, and on the trees and they've locked up all the paddocks and they've locked up all the doors to the house but death slips in through the lock oh and I read it and wow. my I know, I just had chills <laughs> rise on my arms so um, yeah so
0: Alex's connection to that part of her story
3: actually saves her at one point
0: in the book I love it. It's so funny too because I was I, I read it before it was sort of explained, like there's one sentence and I was like, this is wrong.
1: <laughs> you thought it was a typo? Yeah, because I was
0: like, this is this is Spanish, but it's wrong. And I was like, should I tell this Joe? <laughs> I was so worried. I almost and then like as I read on, I was like, Oh, thank God I didn't say anything, because I would have looked like a dummy. No, I mean, but that's also, like, again, this
3: is not a language that, like, um, one of the people I consulted with said he had, like, the greatest moment of his life was hearing a woman speak Ladino to another woman on the subway, that he had never thought he would hear the language spoken in his life.
2: Uh-huh. Um,
3: even though it's his life, like, like in a, not in an academic environment, you know, so... Um, yeah, I mean, I think more people are familiar with Yiddish because Yiddish words have worked their way into um our culture and <laughs> like the has worked its way into our culture more than I don't think and I think many people don't even understand that um they're so much more familiar with Ashkenazi culture than they are with Sephardic culture when it comes to
0: Judaism. Yeah, I'm really glad that you included it because it's something that I had never heard before. It was so interesting, really really cool and um yeah, I just I'm glad to hear sort of like a more in-depth explanation of it. I think people will really enjoy that and that you're personally connected to it as well it makes it even better for me.
1: Cool. I mean, it, that's also kind of like in a like a related kind of way why like, we w- people want to write their own cultures into books is to, like, expose people to the unseen parts of these cultures or, like, the things that aren't, like, common knowledge or, like, don't appear in, like, you know, um, so like, popular culture as often as, like, some stereotypes might, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so it's, like, that's the mood. Like, that's the big mood of, like, why we want to include, like, our own cultures into the books is because we want to share it with people and keep it alive.
0: Absolutely, it's really cool. I'm excited for everyone else to catch up to me
1: and read
0: <laughs> Ninth House.
1: Oh, I mean, it, it's not out yet. First of all, so. <laughs> yes, you are special. Also, you only got that
0: arc because because I of you. you. Yes, yes, <laughs> I know. You are still incredibly young, Lee. But uh, but okay. it, publishing is very obsessed with like young debuts and people who do things at 21 or 22 um and you mentioned that you know you were already in your later 20s early 30s before you got into the industry did you ever feel pressure behind that and if not what would you say to authors who right now are feeling like they're behind because they're not you know still in college or super young and pursuing a publishing career
1: and by authors, we mean me and Claire Bell. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, not me. I'm good. I, but I see people complaining about it constantly, and I just want you to drag them for me.
3: This is one of my biggest beefs with culture is the fetishization of youth and of the young creative, and I think it's so damaging. It's also just such a gigantic lie. Like, yes. If that People are always looking for a hook, right? What makes this book different from other books? What makes this story different from other stories? Why is this author special? And the easiest, laziest hook is, this person is young. Look how young, look how young this person is, you know? This young wunderkind, like, look at that. And so we drag these stories up again and again of, of what has been accomplished at a young age. And you'll even see, you see these lists that are like, you know, 40 under 40 and 30 under 30 and all this. And it's like, that's great, right? But the truth is, if you have a good story to tell, it does not fucking matter how old you are when you tell it. We are not actors, okay? We don't have to look a particular way. We're not big athletes, okay? We do not. Have, our bodies don't have to be able to do particular things. Like that, all of that is nonsense. And you know, look, it would be a cruel lie for me to say that. In getting media coverage or PR, that it doesn't matter if you're not young or if you don't uh, if you don't embody a particular beauty standard or that you're not a particular size. Sure, those can all be advantages, but you know what the best advantage is? Telling a great fucking story because not that many people can do it. So, you write your books and you keep writing your books, and it does not matter how old you are. And you know what? Having shitty jobs makes you a better writer. It makes you a better writer. Okay? I have read books where I'm like, this person has never been poor. <laughs> 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 like, are you, it's, it's like, what? Nonsense that I'm reading, you know? <laughs>
0: I have that thought, Austin, (laughs) someone who did not come from money and who currently has a job that is not the best. I really 100% to this. And, yeah, I'm glad that you're saying that because I I see so many people, especially young, and I I feel like younger people put so much pressure on themselves. I've seen teens on Twitter. Like, I've seen people 18, 19 saying, I don't have an agent yet. And I feel like such a failure because so-and-so has done this much. And I just feel like saying, no, <laughs> like. You just, I
3: they're... think we live in a per- 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 perpetual state of comparison, but the truth is it's just another excuse not to, not to do what you know you're supposed to do. Yeah, you know? Get off of Twitter, get off of Instagram <laughs> and write the book. That's all that matters yeah. is write the book. And if that book doesn't sell, you write another book. Okay. And you, and you do work those. And I, 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 it's something that drives me nuts too, because this idea that like, you know, you, you were, it's great. I, I never want to crap on another woman's success. So if you do sell out right out of college or whatever, awesome, you know, all respect. But the fact is the majority of us don't come from money and don't have that kind of safety net. And we do have to think about how we're going to pay our bills and pay off our loans. Or maybe we have dependents. Maybe somebody, maybe you have kids or maybe you have a parent who can't care for themselves or you're worried about providing for them or whatever it is. Like, these are the realities of the pressures on most people. And this idea that you're somehow supposed to embody this creative life where you sacrifice everything for your art is just a lie. It's a cruel and unfortunate myth that too many people perpetuate. I got my first book deal. I sold my book when I was 35. I wasn't published until I was 37. You know, I had many advantages in the sense that, and I try to be as transparent about them as I can. You know, I I talk about when I left my ex-husband, I had no money. I had no money. I had no credit card. I had nothing. I had to borrow money from my mom. But guess what? My mom was able to loan me money to start a bank account. I was able to live at my mom's house, you know, and I didn't have to worry about like, oh, you know, like, you know, she and she was retired. She didn't, you know, have a job to go to every day. There weren't the same kind of pressures on me that might have been in that circumstance. I was able to get myself out of a bad situation because I had a support system you know? So, and I signed with an agent who was able to really have my back and be a great advocate for me. And I did get support from my publisher right out of the gate. So it's important to, to know that this isn't some magical thing that's happening where people are just doing their thing and all these magical things are happening. It's the alignment of a lot of things. Um, and hard work is absolutely part of it talent is absolutely a part of it but so many other factors come to play so if you are not having that experience or your debut year isn't that or your attempt to query isn't that do not beat yourself up one day you're going to give an interview where you talk about all the shit you went through and you're going to inspire somebody else to keep writing and keep working because your work got out in the world
0: i might be i might be crying I know,
1: fun. like I'm honestly like I'm like choked up. Also I will say, and this is like honestly just my um personal experience and opinion, but as like all three of us are people who literally had careers before we all started writing, mm-hmm. um, I'm grateful for that experience because I was more um mentally prepared for certain certain things that that are thrown at That's... you in publishing. Like I had better coping mechanisms. Like it's I feel like it's a disservice for us not to talk about how much, how taxing publishing is on people's mental health. Um, And if I had to go through all of this, like right out of college, I would definitely not, not be in a good place right now. um, Just knowing who I was back then. That's a very good point. I think, you know,
3: these life experience and getting knocked down and getting up and, Uh, not getting, not having all of your dreams come true is actually, it not only makes you a better writer, but it does make you better able to withstand the storms that that come at you. I think that's very true.
0: I'm really grateful for it too. I think everybody sort of matures at different levels too. Like there are 20 year olds right now who are nothing like I was at 20. At 20, I was like coyote ugly dancing on bars and- (laughs) I would not have done well right now in my twenties in publishing. It would have been really bad. I was wild. Let's just put it that way. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I think, and I, I, I hear you. Same. Well.
3: <laughs> All of the twenties are. There's some things that should never come to life. Um, for me,
1: for me, it's less like the like um, behavior of like going out, and more like if I was a published author in my twenties. I would have made so many mistakes on Twitter, like you don't even know. Like mm-hmm. I I would be that messy person. And oh, I I, know. If,
3: if Goodreads had existed when I was coming up, I would have been such an asshole on <laughs> Goodreads. I absolutely. I thought I knew everything, yeah. you know, and I would have Same. been absolutely terrible. And 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 I, I don't think until you have work in the world, um, I think there's a generosity that comes with with the vulnerability of having work in the world. But I'll say this too, that I think we devalue experience and age across the board. And I wear two pendants very frequently. And um, one of them is the crone's hand because the crone has wisdom, you know, and I think even I wrote it into, I think it's six of Crowns, it might be Crooked kingdom, but how an says, you know, old women know a lot because they've survived a lot. They have to know a lot to make it to that age. And, mm-hmm. and it's built into ninth house too the idea that if you that how tough a woman is if she can make it old age and not have the world destroy her so the the wisdom of the crone is something i always have with me um i think it's something that as women you know we're so afraid of aging we've been taught to fear age and what it does to our bodies and our faces but age means you've survived and that's something i try to keep really close to me
0: oh man yeah that's that's for sure something that I always try to remember. And I think also it's interesting that the three of us have dealt with um, death of a, of a close loved one too, because I always say like getting older really is a blessing. Like not everybody gets to age. Um, So, so for me, you know, I lost my brother to cancer and my brother died when he was 35. Um, So I'm about to be older than what my brother was when he passed away. And that is a blessing. The fact that I am still here and I still get to write and do all of these things is beautiful. It's not the opposite of that. Um, so I, I definitely uh, can relate to, to that. And I
1: can't wait to be an old woman. It's going to be great. I'm going to say whatever I want. Oh, my God. I'm <laughs> so excited. I, I have, an, I have like, old lady, like, uh, grandmother characters in my debut. And they they were kind of my favorite mm-hmm. because they – like, call out my younger characters on BS all the time, and they're just, like, yeah, "Yeah, I know things because I'm old. (laughs) Like, literally. What are you gonna do?
0: I'm retired.
1: (laughs) One of them is literally, like, I know what your secret is. I know exactly the thing that you're so scared of people finding out, but also I don't give a shit because I'm old, and I've experienced life, and, like, you just do you. Like, (laughs) yeah,
0: I have grandmothers in pretty much all of my books and um, there's a grandma named Babette in Ghost Squad and she's oh, love, oh,
2: she's Babette. definitely
0: the coolest character and she's like I'm just going to help you guys cuz I'm bored. <laughs>
3: I'm
1: like that's a move. Yes. Right? Well, let me live
3: to be an old woman on my porch yelling at children as they walk by my house. Yes.
0: My
1: that's the dream
0: right there. Do
1: you think you'd be like a goth
0: old lady? Totally. Oh yeah. She will be I mean, now. my
3: dream, I have already started my path to which aunt, completely. And that is my, that is my desire, is to have many shawls and, uh, and many gems, and to have the house on the block that kids are like, I'm
2: afraid to ring the toy. <laughs> like, oh, it's
3: like, you come and you bring me tribute, you bring me candy, and then, you know, you might survive Halloween. And like oh it just
0: might. God, yes. yes. Yes, yes. Um, Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about the fact that you're going to have a Netflix series soon. <laughs> and I am really excited about it. I, I want to have a watch party because I'm just, I'm going to be screaming Not the whole time too. and I can't be by myself. Um, so what's this whole thing been like for you? Has it been surreal? I know you've been in on like the writing um, of it and like in the writer's room. Like, can you just tell us a little bit of what the experience has been like for you? Yeah, I mean,
3: okay, so the the practical down-to-earth part of me, you know, has been mind-boggled by what this process is like in terms of, like, oh, my God, so many people are involved and so many people give notes, and I'm so used to it being just me and my editor, you know, and me and my friends who are, you know, my, my critique partners, so the sort of the amount of people who have a stake in it has been uh, sort of hard for me to get my head around um, and there's, you know, the level of logistics required to put on, to do, to put this together. You know, I, 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 I put on Instagram when I came out of this meeting, I had come out of these two meetings where I had never been in meetings with this many people. Um, and where I really started to understand that I had really only seen like, the head of the beast that there were so many people working on this that I that I didn't understand and mm-hmm. at one point they talked about our costume designer couldn't be here because she's in India sourcing fabric and I really just was so taken aback by this um <laughs> you know like and I understand <laughs> I mean I do my best to be cool in these meetings and not look <laughs> a fool, but there are a lot of times where I just want to clap my hands and go
2: yay!
3: Um, because it's so thrilling and so exciting. We did it, something that's called show and tell, where the creatives come together and and basically show people. They walk people through the season um, with visual uh, with visuals, and some of it were you know they had had these renderings done of some of the buildings that will be in the show and. Um, also people had they had gone location scouting in Budapest and so they had brought back these images of these places and wow. which scenes they were going to use them in and, um, and they had costumes they had these beautiful renderings of the costumes they had um, Alina and uh, the Darkling and Kaz and I was just I wanted to share all of it so badly because it was all so extraordinary to see so there's a you know there's a part of me that is really concerned because there are so many people involved and because yes I am an executive producer but it's not like I have veto power you know I am there as a consultant but I don't have the kind of swear where I can just say no you don't get to do this um, which is terrifying um, but there's also a part of me that is so thrilled and just the thought of being able to walk onto that set this fall is. Um, uh, yeah, it keeps me up, <laughs> wow. just the whole idea of it, and again, to think that, you know, this began, I started writing that book in 2009, I guess, so 10 years ago, you know, I was sitting at, a, at my dining room table trying, to, um, trying to, to piece this thing together, and the idea that, that we may end up there is just mind-blowing to me.
0: That's so exciting! I can't this
3: wait. <laughs> and, I'm, yeah, like, kind of gun, and I just I want I want everybody to be in on it. And I know there will be people who are like, no, this person's wrong for the role. No, <laughs> out of my head. I'm like, I also am like, just just wait, just wait to see them, just wait to see what magic they just might make if we give them the chance. You know?
1: Yeah, yeah for sure. I I kind of love that. Um, specifically for um, what your story is encompassed and, like, what they're doing with the show is that they're not just doing it, like, book by book by book. It's not, like, the first, like, season is, you know, yeah. is, like... But so I, I kind of... Because then, uh, at least for me as, like, a fan, like, I know that it's going to be, like, a, a new take on, like, an old beloved story. And that's, like, really exciting, I think, because I just love it when, like... Uh, a story is put into a new medium and they still surprise you? Yeah. yeah. It feels think, like there's so much possibility for that here. I think that, look,
3: it is different. Look, there's it's always different. An adaptation is always going to be different unless it is scene by scene, page by page. And yeah. that is not what we set out to do. Um, but if they get it right, and I know there's a lot of ifs in that, but if they get it right, the things that they have planned... I think, are so deeply honor the most important parts of the story and the characters, and there are so many things that will be recognizable and resonant, and what I think we need to remember is that the people who wrote this show are fans. They are people who they, they didn't just read the books, they connected deeply with the characters, um, and they are excited. You know, they, there wasn't this... I think sometimes an adaptation... Um, there's contempt for the original work, particularly when it was written by a woman, and particularly when it's YA. Mm-hmm. And I've seen, I've witnessed that kind of adaptation that kind of turns its nose up at the original material.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I don't feel that that's the way that I don't know where we'll end up because there are so many moving parts and directors and actors and writers and network executives. I don't know where we'll end up. I hope that I can feel as good as I do now about the final product. Um, But I can say that they came at this from, from a place of deep respect um, for not just the series, but the series, the the fans of the series, the readers of the series. And, um, And I think that is in part because of, we have a great showrunner, Eric Heiser, but he also wasn't just like, "Well, let's slap some diversity on here." He he built his writing room full of different people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different lives, and I think it shows in the way that they approach these characters.
1: Yeah, actually, that's I love that you bring that up too because um, I will say like when they announced. Um, the fact that, um, the fact that the main character is now going to be a person of color and like from this, this like marginalized group that within the book, like has a lot of cultural significance within the world. Um, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Especially because like the one-to-one parallel, if you had to make one with our world is like Asian culture, um, or like an Asian person, Um, and so, like, I was really intrigued to see, like, why that decision was made and how it would play out. And it wasn't even, like, oh, no, this is bad. It was more, like, this can be done well as long as they're thinking about everything that comes oh, yeah. around with it. Like, all the baggage that comes with her new identity has to be addressed. And then it will be amazing. And um, and I just expected no one to address it until, like, the show came out. But, like, I, I think maybe it was the showrunner who immediately was like let's talk about it and that level of like willingness to talk about it and transparency went such a long way Mm -hmm. with like having Christina who is one of the writers on the show Christina Strain
3: she's Hapa and she has been and she's also just a stone gold badass like she's just <laughs> a she's an incredible creative she's written for marvel she's written her own um beautiful books and graphic novels and she worked on the magicians like she's just uh, an incredible writer um but she also is fearless i think in terms of confronting um some of the baggage and stereotypes that people bring to a character like this and she basically took the part the part the part the um, the gig because she, she wanted to see uh, a half shoe Alina, um, mm-hmm. and she wanted to write that character. So I think that, you know, she spoke up about it. I get why people are concerned or why, and we didn't make this, it wasn't like a, like a, an inconsequential decision. When Eric and I first sat down to talk about how we're going to build this, I said, you know, like, this is something I got wrong that the show can get right. And we can't treat race as is an issue in this world. So we can't treat it as if like just magically nobody sees that this girl that we have, you know, we are at war with the shoe, but nobody can nobody can see that this our savior happens to be half shoe. I was like, we need to write this in. And he's yeah. been, we've been on the same page with this for a moment. One now, I'm not saying we we're gonna get it all right, but again, I think the intent. Um, And the work of that has been at the forefront of this from the beginning. And I swear to God, somebody somebody was like, how can there be a shoe person with the name Alina Starkov? And I was like, would somebody please look at a map? Because Russia (laughs) has a border with China, and Russia (laughs) is a border with the Shuhan. So that attitude is so bizarre to me. Like, you know, we may fuck it up, but at least give us a chance to fuck it up, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think it's just, I think it, I think people's distrust does come from just, like, a long history of um, people not giving a flying whatever yeah. <laughs> about, about addressing, like, all of the implications of someone. Like, it's, I mean, even in a fantasy world, you still have the face of someone who looks different. So yes. that makes a difference. Like, the way people treat you will be different because of the color of your skin or the shape of your eyes. And so, like, we have been burned in the past... But that's also why, like, the fact that, like, it seems very clear from the beginning that this has been a very deep conversation in the writer's room. Um, it, it's it's nice to hear. It's just nice to see that that's actually a conversation oh, happening. I
3: don't mind people coming at us being like, get this right. That is absolutely the appropriate way to come at us, you know? Like, <laughs> that is 100%. What I mind is white people being like, how is this even possible? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like, oh, wow, you know, privilege is that deep. And look, I, I just think it's a different show. It's a more interesting show. It's a more interesting story. We've all seen Shadow of Bone. I'm still very proud of, but it is a story of some tropes that are subverted, but it is also a, show of some, or a book of some tropes that are not. And I think that this is, a, this is a way that it can be better than the books. And I have absolutely... There's no ego for me in saying that. Like, do better. You know, like, our job as authors... Is not just to write the book of our heart. It's to open our our hearts on our heads to the idea that maybe sometimes we walk into stereotypes and into tropes and into traditions that we don't actually want to be a part of. Um, yeah. So you know, there are things that I look back on, and you know what? I'll just say flat out, like um botkin is you know basically a kill build it like i was like here's my white heroine who will be taught the ways of combat by an asian martial arts instructor oh. and i'm like i look back on that and i'm so embarrassed but part of the process of getting better is being like ah shit got that wrong you know yeah, yeah. And if you can't, you won't improve. Not, yeah, none yeah. of it will. None of it will change. And if we're going to put something big and cultural and exciting out there and spend money on it, and have awesome special effects, then um, we can do this part of the work too.
1: Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's really super important. Yeah. No. You know, I, actually, what's really interesting is that what I've really liked right now, because the publishing industry has changed greatly in the last five years. If only in like the conversations we're having have changed um, surrounding like how publishing is as an industry. Um, and I really, really love that like more established authors are coming forward and saying like, listen, this book that I published 10 years ago, if I could change things, I would. I think that that's a, that's a great thing because it's letting people know that like no story is infallible. Like just because it's like classic or beloved or whatever, doesn't mean that like you're not allowed to, um, have like critical interaction with it. Um, and you get this like wonderful, like rare chance to like reimagine some things about the story that you wrote ten years ago. That now, like you would love to change in this, like knowing what you know now. And I think that that's really beautiful. That not only are you saying it, but you're following through with it.
3: Well, that I makes- also think that that frees us in some ways to say that there is no perfect book. There is no perfect example of representation there is no the thing that seemed progressive and interesting and exciting 10 years ago or 50 years ago we look at through a different lens now and it doesn't mean we have to disavow the things we like we just have to try our best to engage with them honestly um to engage with those works and to not be not and to not have to feel the need to protect them in this way that that makes it impossible for us to hear criticism of them.
1: Um, no, yeah. Like, don't be – I think no creator should ever be so precious about their work that they can not absorb valid, like, criticism – like, constructive criticism about it and, like, grow from that.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. And also as fans of work. Like, when I talk mm-hmm. about protecting a work, I'm like, you know, there are things that I love
3: that I can look at and be like – like, doom. Dune is a great example of this. I love Dune. Okay, Dune was a really important book for me, and there's some things in it that are incredible. But it's also super racist and yes. super <laughs> imperialist, and I mean, it's literally a colonization story. Yeah. Like, and you know, I, it doesn't mean I have to disavow Dune and burn my copies of it. But it does mean that I have to understand like what is functioning in that story that that I would not want to repeat.
1: Yeah, I agree. I feel that way about Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Like, and so that's many people base, like, like so many people base their fantasy tropes on Lord of the Rings because it's the classic, you know, the classic journey, whatever, the like the small person rises up. But like so much, so much racist imagery and in there that like it's there. I'm sorry. Yeah. We have to unpack it because we are still using it as a rubric for like what is classic fantasy. So if we're gonna use that book as a rubric, we also have to know where that book messed up.
3: Yes <laughs> or theories. So like and there's a lot of works like this. Even like The Princess Bride, I reread The Princess Bride recently. Um, Wesley hits Buttercup. He smacks her across the face. Oh, I don't remember that. And even in the movie, he raises his hand as if he's gonna hit her. And it's fine to say he was the men in black the man in black, he's wearing a mask. So I remember his yeah. anger is real. He's genuinely angry and hurt in that moment and then is like completely forgotten in the next the next moment. So I this is the danger of going back and reading the things or engaging with the things you loved when you were young. But it's also okay to, to have a conversation about that and to say, okay, this was something that I loved at the time, and this is something that I that I still love. Some part of me still loves and and creatively engages with. But okay, like <laughs> there's that doesn't mean I have to pretend that it's perfect in some way, right? And yeah i think this comes into even like the way we ship things and and the fandom things we love you can ship crazy shit by all means do ship them but don't like you don't actually have to make it a perfect ship to love it love a crack ship you know love a wrong ship love a kinky ship like whatever it is but like you don't have to make
1: it okay or permissible to love those things it's okay is this you saying that you're, you're like, totally down for the shipping of The Darkling with Helena? <laughs>
3: I've always been, like, by all means, ship it. But don't forgive him. Don't uh, excuse, yeah. don't turn him into um, somebody who, a character that he was not. You know, don't pretend that, that just because you had a, a rough childhood, you get to be an asshole and an abuser. Because he is. Yeah. He literally grooms her. Like it is built into the story. At one point, Bagra says, "Like he has had a long time to figure out how to manipulate a young girl." Like, yeah, yeah. let's not like that ship it. Please ship it. I totally would have shipped it as a youth. Like the reason I wrote him sexy was because the most difficult, problematic relationships we have in our lives don't look like evil on a stick walking in. You know, yeah, yeah. the 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 charm. And Beauty and these wounded boys, they get away with a lot of shit they shouldn't because they do young have a really good jawline, you know? Like, <laughs> like, I am all, like, I, people will forgive anything um, of, of these characters. And for me, I was just never willing to to let up on that.
0: That's very true and good to know because I... I know the Darkling is messed up, but I still love him. Oops. You can, you can. Yeah. <laughs> It's okay to love
3: him. He's very
0: handsome.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and I hope he's interesting. You know, I hope that he is... Totally. I think he is a character, that, and he's powerful, and I think we we lock in with characters who are powerful and who get away with things and do things that we only think of doing. I mean, I think that's part of why people love Kaz, Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, and and I think you could point to the Darkling and say the Darkling is a much more noble character than Kaz is. Um, But I don't know that he's a more moral character than Kaz
1: is. Right. The Darkling has a cause.
3: He
0: does. And Kaz's cause is money. Yeah. He has a cause too. It's just his
1: pockets. That's fine. What are you going to do?
0: The Darkling is
1: more Ravenclaw, actually, than, like, Kaz is more Slytherin. Sorry, I'm like, getting weird about those. I don't
0: know that I. Agree. I don't think I agree with that. No, either. because I think.
1: Well, I
3: think the Darkness can justify Darcy his. Is more Gryffindor. Um, oh, interesting. Anything. Yeah, I but, see but I, mean, I say yeah. this as a Slytherin who gets really annoyed with Gryffindors and their <laughs> their, their hero complexes. Um, I think Kaz knows who he is and recognizes his ambition as such. He doesn't yeah. have the pretensions of doing the right thing that I think the Darkling wants you to believe that he is... The Darkling says a lot of good stuff, but Mm -hmm. his actions rarely back that up. Um, So, yeah, I think that they're they're two very different characters also. Kaz is a 17-year-old boy, um, and the Darkling is
0: not. (laughs) He's a billion years old. (laughs)
2: He's a billion years (laughs) old. Hanging out, getting
0: bored for you. Um. Okay, so everyone who is on Write or Die has to share one of two things either something that they wish they'd known before they began this publishing journey or their most embarrassing publishing related story. So, Lee, it's up to you which one you want to share.
3: I think I wish I had known that a big part of this business is about your team. I think that publishing, writing is very solitary. And I think as writers, we are solitary creatures, but the crew that you build, the family that you build to help you through this march is the way that you keep going. It's your agent. It's your critique partners. It's the people who you hold close, who you can trust. You've got to have those people. You will not make it on your own. And they're also the people who, when you step in it, when you make mistakes, are going to call you out on them and they're going to do it in a loving way, but they're going to help you to be better at your craft and to make it through. I don't know that I understood all of the challenges that come with the business side of this. The creative challenges we talk about a lot. We talk about craft. We talk about that first draft. We talk about revision. We talk about the self-doubt that comes with it. But the business side of this is just as if if not more challenging. And those things, you know, being able to talk about money, okay, being able to talk about the, the nitty gritty of health insurance and where you live and the advantages or disadvantages to going on a tour or which parts of things you should be paying for or not paying for. You know, in some ways, I think that, you know, powerful people remain in power when we don't um, talk to one another, and when we don't support each other, so I guess what I would say is build your crew wisely and hold them close.
0: I love that amazing advice, Kat. You can stay.
1: Yay! <laughs> yeah. Close to her <laughs> you Have to hold me.
0: <laughs> um, Lee, where can people follow you on the internet?
3: Um, I can be found on Instagram and Twitter at LBardugo, just the initial LBardugo, not LBardugo. I mean, you could, but... Um, so, and I most like to be on Instagram. Twitter is still meh for me. Um, still sort of finding my footing there. I left for a long time and I still haven't quite gotten my sea legs back. Um, I'm not really on Facebook. I have a Facebook account, but I don't update it myself. Um, and please come to see me when I do events. I really love meeting people. I've met online in person. Um, I feel like there's no substitute for that. So I'll be going on tour, um, for ninth house in the u.s and some other places that we haven't announced yet and i hope i will see some of your faces out there
0: lee thank you so much thank for you. being on the show oh, welcome thank oh, you guys of I course appreciate. we were so excited to have you on this has been an amazing chat and you're the best
1: oh you're amazing. Guys are great <laughs> Listening to Red or Die. Make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, leave us a review, and while you're at it, be sure to pick up Wicked Fox by me, Cat Cho, and Ghost Squad by Clarable A. Ortega. See you next time, Wordies,
0: and don't forget to spread the word.